Section 15 of Police. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Police by Robert W. Chalmers. Section 15. One Over. Part 4. Where the ambition of this infatuated woman had led her appalled us all. The personal sacrifice she had made in the name of science awed us. Still, when I remembered that detaining arm sleepily lifted from the nuptial hammock, I was not so certain concerning her continued martyrdom. I cast an involuntary glance of critical appraisal upon James Scaw. He had the golden hair and beard of an early Christian martyr. His features were classically regular. He stood six foot six. He was lean because fit, sound as a hound's tooth, and really a superb specimen of masculine health. Curry him, and trim him, and clothe him in evening dress, and his physical appearance would make a sensation at the court of St. James. Only his English required manicuring. The longer I looked at him, the better I comprehended the detaining hand from the hammock, Fabus indulcet fames. Then, with a shock, it rushed over me that there evidently had been some ground for this man's letters to me concerning a herd of frozen mammoths. Professor Bottomley had not only married him to obtain the information, but here she was, still camping on the marsh. "'James Scaw,' I said tremulously, "'where, where are those mammoths?' He looked at me, made a vague gesture. "'Under the mud, everywhere, all round us.' "'Has she seen them?' "'Yes. I showed her about a hundred. "'There's one under you. "'Look, you can see him through the slush.' "'Oh, God!' burst from Dr. Foose, and he tottered in his saddle. Lazard, frightfully pale, passed a shaking hand over his brow. As for me, my hair became dank with misery, for there, directly under my feet, the vast hairy bulk of a mammoth, lay dimly visible through the muddy ice. What I had done to myself when I was planning to do Professor Bottomley suddenly burst upon me in all its hideous proportions. Fame, the plaudits of the world, the highest scientific honors, all these in my effort to annihilate her, I had deliberately thrust upon this woman to my everlasting detriment and disgrace. A sort of howl escaped from Dr. Foose, who had dismounted and who had been scratching in the slush with his feet like a hen, for already this slight gallinaceous effort of his had laid bare a hairy section of frozen mammoth. Lazard, weeping bitterly, squatted beside him, clawing at the thin skin of ice with a pickaxe. It seemed more than I could bear, and I flung myself from my mule, and seizing a spade, fell violently to work, the tears of rage and mortification coursing down my cheeks, "'Hurrah!' cried Dr. Delmore, excitedly, scrambling down from her mule and lifting a box of dynamite from her saddlebags. Transfigured with enthusiasm, she seized a crowbar, traced in the slush the vast outlines of the buried beast, then, measuring with practiced eye their irregular zone of cleavage, she marked out a vast oval, dug holes along it with her bar, dropped into each hole a stick of dynamite, cut out the batteries and wires, attached the fuses, covered each charge, and retired on a run toward the moraine, unreeling wire as she sped upward among the boulders. Half frantic with grief and half mad with the excitement of the moment, we still had sense enough to shoulder our tools and drive our mules back across the moraine. 
only the mule hammock in which reposed Professor Bottomley remained on the marsh. For one horrid instant, temptation assailed me to press the button before James Scaw could lead the hammock mules up to the moraine. It was my closest approach to crime. With a shudder, I viewed the approach of the mules. James Scaw led them by the head. The hammock on its bar and swivels swung gently between them. Professor Bottomley slept, lulled, no doubt, to deeper slumber by the gentle swaying hammock. When the hammock came up, one by one we gazed upon its unconscious occupant. And, even amid dark and revengeful thoughts, amid a mental chaos of grief and fury and frantic self-reproach, I had to admit to myself that Jane Bottomley was a fine figure of a woman, and good-looking too, and that her hair was all her own and almost magnificent that. With a modest to advise her, a maid to dress her, I myself might have, uh, but let that pass. Only as I gazed upon her fresh complexion and the softly parted red lips of Professor Bottomley, and as I noted the beautiful white throat and prettily shaped hands, a newer, bitterer, and more overwhelming despair seized me, and I realized now that perhaps I had thrown away more than fame, honors, applause. I had perhaps thrown away love. At that moment, Professor Bottomley awoke. For a moment, her lilac-tinted eyes had a dazed expression. Then they widened, and she lay very quietly looking from one to another of us, cradled in the golden glory of her hair, perfect mistress of herself and her mind is clear as a bell. "'Well,' she said, "'so you have arrived at last.' And to Dr. Delmore, she smilingly extended a cool, fresh hand. "'Have you met my husband?' she inquired. We admitted that we had. "'James!' she called. At the sound of her voice, James Scaw hopped nimbly to do her bidding. A tender smile came into her face as she gazed upon her husband. She made no explanation concerning him, no apology for him. And, watching her, it slowly filtered into my mind that she liked him. With one hand in her husband's, and one on Dr. Delmore's arm, she listened to Daisy's account of what we were about to do to the embedded mammoth, and nodded approval. James Scott turned the mules so that she might watch the explosion. She twisted up her hair, then sat up in her hammock. Daisy Delmore pressed the electric button. There came a deep jarring sound, a vast upheaval, and up out of the mud rose five or six dozen mammoths, and toppled gently over onto the surface of the ice. Miserable as we were at such an astonishing spectacle, we raised a tragic cheer as Professor Bottomley sprang out of her hammock, and, telling Dr. Delmore to get a camera, seized her husband, and sped down to where one of the great hairy frozen beasts lay on the ice in full sunshine and then we tasted the last drop of gall which our over-slopping cup of bitterness held for us. Professor Bottomley climbed up the sides of the frozen mammoth, dragging her husband with her, and stood there waving a little American flag while Dr. Delmore used up every film in the camera to record the scientific triumph of the ages. Almost idiotic with the shock of my great grief, I reeled and tottered away among the boulders. Foose came to find me, and when he found me he kicked me violently for some time. "'Else the dumb cough,' he said. When he was tired, Lazard came and fell upon me, showering me with kicks and anathema. When he went away, I beat my head with my fists for a while. Very little helped. After a time I smelled cooking, and presently Dr. Delmore came to where I sat huddled up miserably in the sun behind the boulder. "'Luncheon is ready,' she said. I groaned. 
don't you feel well i said that i did not she lingered apparently with the idea of cheering me up it's been such fun she said professor lazard and i have already located over a hundred and fifty mammoths within a short distance of here and apparently there are hundreds if not thousands more in the vicinity the ivory alone is worth over a million dollars isn't it wonderful she laughed excitedly and danced away to join the others then out of the black depths of my misery a feeble gleam illuminated the stygian obscurity there was one way left to stay my approaching downfall only one professor bottomley meant to get rid of me for the good of the bronx but there remained a way to ward off impending disaster and though i had lost the opportunity of my life by disbelieving the simple honesty of james scaw and though the honors and emoluments and applause which ought to have been mine were destined for this determined woman still if i kept my head i should be able to hold my job at the bronx dr delmore was immovable in the good graces of professor bottomley and the only way for me to retain my position was to marry her the thought comforted me after a while i felt well enough to arise and partake of some luncheon they were all seated around the campfire when i approached inquiries concerning my health were offered but the coldly malevolent glare of dr foose and the calm contempt in lazard's gaze chilled me and i squatted down by daisy delmore and accepted a dish of soup from her in mortified silence professor bottomley and james scaw were feasting connubially side by side and she was selecting tidbits for him which he dutifully swallowed his large mild eyes gazing at vacancy in a gentle surprised sort of way as he gulped down what she offered him neither of them paid any attention to anybody else foost gobbled his lunch in a sort of raging silence lazard on the other side of dr delmore conversed with her continually in undertones after a while his persistent murmuring began to strike me uneasy even suspicious and i glared at him sideways daisy delmore catching my eye blushed hesitated and then leaning over towards me with a delightful confusion she whispered i know that you will be glad to hear that i have just promised to marry your closest friend professor lazard what i shouted with all my might have you put one over on me too lazard and foose seized me for i had risen and was jumping up and down and splashing them with soup everyone has put one over on me i shrieked everybody now i'm going to put one over on myself and i lifted my plate of soup and reversed it on my head they told me later that i screamed for half an hour before i swooned afterward my intellect being impaired instead of being dismissed from my department i was promoted to the position which i now hold as president emeritus of the consolidated art museums and zoological gardens of the city of new york i have easy hours little to do and twenty ornamental stenographers and typewriters engaged upon my memoirs which i dictate when i feel like it steeped in the aroma of the most inexpensive cigar i can buy at the rolling stone inn there is one typist in particular um, but let that pass vir sapat quid poca loquitar end of section fifteen recording by todd